0: Very good evening, brothers and sisters in the Dharma. It is our great honour to have invited Ajahn Brahm, or more to conduct a 10 retreat in Mindaran Buddhist Temple. And today, okay, for those of you who are still not familiar with Ajahn Brahm, please allow me to give a brief introduction of Ajahn. Ajahn Brahm was born in London in 1951. Ajahn regarded himself a Buddhist at the age of 17 through his reading of Buddhist books while still at school. His interest in Buddhism and meditation flourished while studying theoretical physics at Cambridge University. After completing his degree and teaching for a year, Ajahn travelled to Thailand to become a monk. Ajahn was ordained in Bangkok at the age of 23 by the abbot of Wat Saket. Ajahn subsequently spent nine years studying and training in the forest meditation tradition of the Venerable Ajahn Chah. In 1983, Ajahn was asked to assist in the establishing of a forest monastery near Perth, Western Australia. Ajahn Brahm is now the abbot of Bodhiyana Monastery and the spiritual director of the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. Ajahn is also the spiritual patron of the Buddhist Fellowship in Singapore. Brothers and sisters in the Dhamma, tonight's topic... Tonight, Ajahn will enlighten us on the topic bringing Buddhism into the 20th century.
1: It's supposed to be 21st, 21st century. century. Oh. There's a misfit.
0: My apology.
1: Okay. It just actually shows that it's so hard to bring Buddhism into the 21st century. We can't even put it on the posters. So we must be in the 19th century and trying at least to come into last century. But it's true that being a monk who travels the world and especially living in Western countries. It's a great challenge actually to bring this incredibly powerful, wonderful teaching of Buddhism and actually bring it into a form, uh, into a manner which uh, people of our modern age can understand, accept, be inspired by and practice for their betterment and for the happiness of their family and others and obviously we're being reasonably successful in attracting even younger people. And as a monk, I have to be very, very careful to make sure we're always attracting younger people. Because some of my older supporters, they're getting so old that when they die, they'll have no one to feed me. (laughs) So it's important to have younger people as well. But no, that's only for fun. The point is that in some places you only find old people going to temples. Mm. And if only old people are going to temples, I mean, where's Buddhism going to be in the next 20, 30, 40 years? So it is really important to bring Buddhism into the modern age, into the 21st century, and you know it's very easy to do so. You don't really have to change Buddhism because the basic, uh, original teachings of Buddhism are more than applicable to the modern age. Now for example, this practice of meditation, I hope you know this by now, that in many universities of our world they have meditation training. They call it mindfulness studies and now you can do a PhD in meditation or mindfulness studies in Oxford. Now that's how popular it's becoming. In fact, those people on this retreat You're on the cutting edge of modern research. You are the people who are not just in the 21st century but you're the forerunners of the 22nd century. Because meditation is a training of the mind and even though this is original Buddhism from the time of the Buddha he became enlightened sitting under a tree meditating. He didn't become enlightened reading a book. He didn't become enlightened uh, surfing the internet. He became enlightened sitting down meditating. And modern people in universities, psychologists, psychiatrists, medical personnel, they're looking into this ancient practice of things like meditation and other Buddhist, Buddhist attitudes to life and you know what they're finding? It works! It was a couple of years ago that the British National Health Service were doing some cutting-edge research into one of the diseases which is affecting the whole of the world, depression. I'm not quite sure in Malaysia, but I'm sure that in Malaysia, as well as many other modern countries, depression is one of the fastest-growing, debilitating diseases. And so a major health provider like the British National Health Service had to find how can we spend our limited amount of cash in the most productive way to help our population. And so they did research into three therapies. Medication, the pills. Counseling, sitting down with somebody and talking over your problems. And number three, meditation. And this was a huge clinical trial done under the most stringent research conditions. And they published the results a year or two ago. And the results proved very clearly medication had no significant effect and the drug companies were very upset, but that was the finding. Counseling, what they call cognitive therapy, had an effect. Just talking over the problems when you get depressed with another person does help, much better than the pills. But the best of all therapies was, you know, meditation. It worked! And now, in the British National Health Service, the preferred treatment for anyone who comes into those doctors' surgeries or psych- um, to those psychologists with depression is to meditate. Now this of course is state of the art research. Finding out some of these ancient practices of Buddhism actually work. And that's why In my temple, over in Perth, we get many people come to learn meditation sent by their doctors. And even that little green book which you've got at the beginning of this retreat, The Basic Method of Meditation, that is put in I don't know how many doctors, surgeries and dentists around Perth. There's a nice introduction on how to meditate. These things actually work and they save the government so much money because depression costs a huge amount of money to the economy, to the health service, that really the government should be sponsoring these books. We're saving them money. They should even be sponsoring this retreat because they're saving the government money because you're going to be far more healthier after coming to this retreat and you'll be able to increase... Uh, the, your productivity, uh, strengthen the economy and so really we should be getting a big grant for this retreat and even for this talk this evening. You also know that meditation was being used in British schools. I mention British schools because they're a little bit more advanced unfortunately than Australian schools because in British school there's one school a couple of years ago, Wellington Public School started teaching meditation once a week to every student compulsory, no matter what religion they were. And when the newspapers found this out, they interviewed the principal, the headmaster. Said, what are you doing this for? Are you some evangelical Buddhist? Some you know, born-again... Actually, all, all Buddhists are born-again. Because you know, we believe in reincarnation. So you can say you're a born-again Buddhist. But are you some crazy evangelical you No, know, teaching meditation compulsory to all students? What are you trying to prove by this? And the headmaster said, look, here are the studies. Here is the research. It's been well known for so many years that when a person learns meditation, they train the mind. Number one, they can absorb information much easier. They can remember it much better. They could do their examinations and assignments with less stress they perform better academically and we've also noticed that just socially in their school they get on better with their friends now that has been proven in fact my own um, experience with that is maybe about 15 years ago one of my students in Perth she was the deputy principal of a primary school she would always teach year sixes in the primary school and uh, she invited me in to give a talk to that primary school and I met the principal and the principal was praising and praising and praising her because she would teach meditation every year to the year sixes so everyone going through that school when they got to year six they would learn meditation Because there were many Christians in that school, she would call it quiet time. Exactly the same thing as we say as meditation over here, you call it quiet time. Remembering to take Buddhism into the 21st century, you must always remember marketing. Remember marketing, 21st century tool. Take the product, it's a great product, but give it a bit of a a new packaging to make it acceptable to modern people. So, because sometimes there some people who say it's Buddhist, you think they're going to convert you. They say it's Christian, you think they're going to be converted. So, why waste these amazing teachings by calling it Buddhist or calling it Christian or calling it something else, when really it's for everybody? So, she called it quiet time and she began every year teaching the children every morning five minutes of quiet time, building it up to 15 or 20 minutes by the end of the year. And she had amazing results. The principal noticed this and she said, I'm not a Buddhist, said the principal, but I have seen over the three or four years that she's been doing this, there's great benefits for all those children. And even though that some of my, uh, the parents of those children are very devout Christians and they object, I take them into my office and say, look, this is nothing to do with converting your children. They're not going to be a Buddhist afterwards, but they are going to be smarter and more integrated in their personal life. I've seen it work, it does work, and it did work. And in fact, I was telling a few people, telling Venerable Damarato, that in Western Australia, in high school, at the end of the year, this was year twelve, because in Australian system you finish school one year earlier than in the British system, but you do four years at university. So you do your final examinations at 17 where I imagine the A-levels which are done in uh, Malaysia are done at 18. Is that correct? Yeah, I thought so. But at the end of the final year when they do their leaving exams the child who comes top in the whole state gets a medal. It's called the Beasley Medal. I don't know who's won it this year because it should be announced pretty soon but the one who won it last year was one of my students, one who comes every week to listen to the teachings and meditates. And he got the top prize, and as part of that top prize, because he's the top student in the whole of the state of Western Australia, he has now got a scholarship to Harvard. Now, for all of you parents who want your children to go to Harvard, with no charge to the family fortune. If you want your kids to get a good education, it actually works, this meditation business. So, many people are taking their children to learn meditation because it does increase their academic skills. Of course it does. If you want to play soccer, You can't just go on a pitch with a ball and think you're going to be any good. You have to train. And some of that training is just strengthening your muscles at the gym, pushing weights or running or whatever else it is, which has nothing to do with a football, but you're training your body to have it strong, to have it fit with very, very strong muscles. And how do you think you can pass exams and have academic success if you don't train the muscles of your mind and that's what meditation does. So because of that, one of the great ways of taking Buddhism into the 21st century is to focus on one of its core teachings which is its meditation practice. And do you know even there was uh, a, one of the meditators at Harvard she was doing research on meditation and she was following meditators for seven years. And part of her research, you know, finding out how long they meditate every day, how often they meditate, and giving them psychology uh, questionnaires to find out you know, whether they were more integrated, happy, had good relationships, felt depressed or suicidal, whether they were felt good about themselves. All these questions to find out how happy they were, you know, in their, in their lives. But also as part of the research she would give them CT scans of their brain every year, just to see if it had any physical effect on your brain. And that was when she found to her surprise and everyone else's surprise is that when you meditate over these seven years, your brain gets bigger the cortex increased in size. If you want to put it crudely, you get more gigabytes between your ears. (laughs) You get more computing power. And that's shown on the CT scans. And so people understand just the power of this. And if we use uh, this, now as one of the main features of Buddhism, It's amazing just how popular this Buddhism will become in the 21st century. Now based on the core teachings of Buddhism, Samadhi. Not only does it help you in your academic career, and I mentioned earlier in your health, how many health problems do people have, how many people end up in cancer wards, how many people have other stress-related illnesses, And what do they do? They come and ask to learn meditation. It has very well documented health benefits when you meditate. And I mentioned this I think on the first talk. In the United States, in California, if you can write on your health form yes you meditate regularly and you get someone like a monk to sign it to say yeah she, he is a regular meditator you do get a substantial reduction in the amount of money you have to pay for health insurance. Because everybody knows if you meditate you are healthier. So it increases your health, increases your academic performance and when you go to work increases your business performance as well. So when you... I don't know how many conferences I've been to which are nothing to do with Buddhism which are for companies, government organizations, people who live very stressful lives in the office and they really want to learn meditation and Buddhism. There's actually too many invitations for me to accept. And the reason why they want to learn Buddhism and meditation because nothing else works to reduce the stress of our modern lifestyle in the office. Now all of you who are going to go to work tomorrow morning, you know you know how hard it can be, how there's office backstabbing, how they give you more work than anyone can do, unless you know how to meditate, and you have to sort of really work hard to get the promotion, because it's not just getting a promotion, if you don't work hard in today's economic climate you could get made redundant, you're given the sack. It's a very competitive time and if you've got your own business gee it's very hard to get ahead when everybody else is competing and there's very little money around right now. So those CEOs, those managers, those HR, you know, human resources managers they're asking please come and teach us meditation. Can you please come because our office they get so stressed out They get so upset and angry and whenever they have any office politics, any bad feeling, they're wasting the company's time by arguing with each other. They should be working for the company rather than competing against each other and destroying the company's profitability. So you teach them how to meditate and it's so easy. For those of you in the back over there who haven't learned meditation before, it's very easy. Every year I say this, how heavy is my cup? this is what I do to the CEOs to teach them how to meditate how heavy is your cup and you know some smart addicts say uh, 200 grams (laughs) so that's not what I mean how heavy does it feel because the longer you hold it the heavier it feels if I keep holding like this for five minutes my arm will start to ache after 10 minutes I will be in considerable pain. If I keep holding it like this for half an hour, I will be in agony and a very, very stupid monk. What should I do when it gets too heavy to bear? Put it down, stupid. (laughs) You don't have to throw it away. Put it down for one minute. And the last time I was here, I suggested this, if you don't believe me, try it at home. Hold a cup of water for 10 minutes, and then put it down for one minute, then pick it up again. You will find, yeah, it feels much lighter. It's exactly the same weight, but because you've rested, and then you pick it up, it feels lighter. Now the meaning of that simile is quite clear to these stressed out managers. It's nothing to do with how much responsibility you have, how many projects you have. That is not the cause of stress. You can have heaps and heaps of projects. Look at what they said, what I do. I now list my responsibilities. I'm the abbot of a big Buddhist monastery in Australia, 100 acres. I also run the, another 140 acres retreat center, And I actually run that and sometimes do the plumbing at the same time. And I have a big Buddhist center uh, in Perth, which I look after. I'm the spiritual director. And I also look after our big nuns monastery, which is only 563 acres. As well as that, I'm the spiritual advisor of the Buddhist Society of Victoria and also the spiritual advisor of the Buddhist Society of South Australia. I'm the director of Wat Buddha Dhamma in Sydney, the spiritual patron of Bodhi Kusuma Temple in Sydney. I'm also the founder and vice president of the Australian Sangha Association. I'm also the, uh, what is it, the uh, director of the Brahm Education Centre in Singapore and the spiritual patron and main teacher of the Buddhist, society, of the, uh, Buddhist Fellowship in Singapore. And of course I'm also the great friend of Mahindra Ramapali school as well. and <laughs> come here every year. And some people look at how much I have to do and say, how on earth can you find any time to meditate when you do so much work? And those of you who have seen me, do I get stressed out? Do I get very angry and say, leave me alone Chao Po, no more, no more, no more. Now you don't do that and the reason why is because number one you meditate and number two because of your meditation, because of these Buddhist practices you can learn how to put things down and leave it alone for one minute. So when you pick up your burden afterwards it's easy to carry. So for me it's easy to do all this work because whenever I get tired I put it down leave it alone and rest. Now your trouble is you never put anything down. Even at night time you worry, 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 worry. <laughs> it's a weekend, you're not working this weekend, the weekend is holiday time. But have you thought about all your business and stuff you have to do? No wonder you get stressed out. So in many corporations, they love this simile, learning how just to put things down. doesn't matter what contract you've got to have to think about, it doesn't matter sort of all the problems which you have to deal with later on, even if the whole company is going bankrupt, the auditors are here, the fraud squad is here, and everybody else is here, put it down for a while and rest. And if you can do that, these great Buddhist practices of meditation and letting go, you'll find that you'll be a very good CEO, manager or office worker. Your productivity will go up, not because you work longer hours, but because you are more efficient. That's what Buddhist teaches modern people. Not working longer, because each one of you is working to your limit, beyond your limit. So the secret of success is not working longer, but more efficiently. And that's where Buddhist practices of meditation really come to the f- fore. So we have all these incredibly powerful teachings. Even in psychology, sometimes people have all this grief and anger. You know, they get very, very sad. You know when. You no, know, their loved ones die. And sometimes they go to the Christians or the other counsellors and eventually they come to the Buddhists. Actually the psychologists come to the Buddhists to learn things. That's why I was also uh, part of the, what's it called, the Australian Association of Buddhist Counsellors and Psychotherapists. And there's so many counsellors and psychiatrists and healers who are Buddhist. You know why? Because as a Buddhist traditional Buddhism we can give you attitudes and teachings which are so applicable to the modern world that they work, a simple one. For the last year I was giving talks to disability services, to psychologists, I forget who else, and I was going along telling people an important thing to understand if you're in one of those healing professions. If you are a doctor, a nurse, a counsellor, psychologist, acupuncturist or whatever, please understand the role of such people is not to cure your patient. If you think your purpose is to cure your patient, many times you will harm them. The job of a doctor, a nurse, a counselor, a psychologist, psychiatrist is not to cure, it is to care. Please put caring for your patient above and beyond curing them. Because what happens, say a doctor, they think that curing is the priority, is the main thing they should do. So sometimes at the end of a person's life they go to such extremes trying to cure that illness. They put that patient through so much unnecessary suffering and it's a terrible ending for them when really all they need is not to be cured but to be cared for. If you go to hospital or go to see your GP and he doesn't just try and cure you but cares for you, then you are a very very fortunate person with a wonderful GP. Too often when our healing services think their only job is to cure you and they forget about caring sometimes they harm us physically and psychologically. But imagine if the doctors, nurses, psychologists say the main thing I'm going to do with you when you come in with your cancer when you come in with your broken leg is to care for you first and foremost then there will be just as much or probably even more curing and also if the cures don't happen and if you are to die you will die in a wonderful caring environment. In some hospitals in the West it's all about curing and not caring. So they give you all the best medicines, the best surgical procedures, the best of everything except there's no one there to hold your hand and just talk with you and care for you. For Buddhism it's so clear. Compassion is the most important thing. Curing is second priority. Now those are the sorts of attitudes which when we teach them people said oh yes why didn't we think of that and it makes the whole situation of health of dying no healing it puts it in a much better context there are some doctors who have come to me because they're my students and especially when they've lost their first patient They're trying, trying, trying to sort of heal them and they die. And they get so frustrated and they feel so guilty. And I said, look, it's obvious that as a doctor, as a nurse, as a carer, you won't always be able to stop the process of death. So if you think your job is to cure, many times you will feel a failure because you haven't been able to fulfill your goal of curing. But if you think your main job is to care, you never need to feel a failure. As a doctor, as a nurse. Because caring is always something you can do. Curing, sometimes you can't do. That's why caring is the main priority. So as a Buddhist we teach all our doctors and nurses, when you go there into that hospital, remember, Your main priority is not to heal the disease. The main priority is not to cure the cancer. Your main priority is to care for that person in front of you. And if you can do that, you will never feel a failure as a doctor. If that person is going, 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 you make them die in the most beautiful way, feeling cared for, feeling loved. And you always feel a success. And I know this, as a side effect, you'll find you do actually cure more people. Because compassion and kindness have a huge therapeutic value. Everybody knows that, they keep on forgetting it. So that's why sometimes things like foot massage or Reiki actually work. Whether it's anything you know, physical to it, I don't care. Whether it's some energy from some devas coming down into you, I don't care. What I do know, if someone is massaging you or spending time with you, they are caring for you. And caring has a huge therapeutic impact on your health. So those of you here who are doctors, nurses, psychologists or whatever you do, please remember that your main priority is not to cure but to care. And when you start putting that across, people think, wow this Buddhism, is actually helping the problems of the 21st century. It is relevant. I've already started with the meditation and now this is coming on to the great wisdom teachings of Buddhism. Buddhism is always very practical. One of the problems which we have as Buddhists of taking Buddhism into this 21st century is literally focusing on all of our strengths which are the things which 21st century people Really want to hear. That is why I think, uh, I'm not sure if it's a question time or one of the talks which I gave, I think it's a question time. Somebody asked me, Now, how can we make Buddhism relevant to teenagers? Remember the answer to that question I gave? What are teenage boys really interested in? Teenage girls. What are teenage girls really interested in? Teenage boys. So we wanted to teach them a way so that these Buddhist teachings can be relevant to them. And you heard what I said in that question time when I uh, went to a youth camp, you know, just to teach for a couple of hours in Singapore, and there were the boys and the girls, and they were just, maybe it's Singapore, Malaysia, the girls were on one side, the boys were on the other side, they weren't sort of integrating it, but I exploited that. Remember I asked the girls, what do you like about a boy? What makes a boy attractive to you? And the, basically the, sort of, the, girl, the girl said, he's a good boy, he's virtuous, he's kind, he's trustworthy. And that was something which you don't hear in the advertisements on the TV. On the TV, to be attractive, you know, you've got to be good looking, sort of clever, you No know, speak you no know, really sort of good, um, good ways of speaking and wear expensive clothes and be really tough. But in real life, apparently, that's not what turns girls on. They want someone they can trust, who's kind, who's good. It's the virtue is what you want. Then I asked the, the boys, what do you like about a girl? And they were basically saying the same thing. Virtue, goodness, trustworthiness, reliability, turning up on time to dates or whatever, being someone they can look up to, That is what makes you attractive. So now we say, how can I teach precepts to our kids? You say, if you keep five precepts, that's worth, as a girl, that's worth a dozen Versace dresses. (laughs) It makes you attractive. So that was a way of presenting Buddhism. Now basic teachings of virtue, which sometimes people say it's such a hard thing to teach our younger generation you know, to be good. How can I teach my kids to be good kids? Again, you have to have a marketing angle. You, know, you, have, to know, you have to know your client base. You know, do research into their needs and what they want. This is actually bringing Buddhism into our modern world. So, I'm not sure, the word marketing, I learned that by hanging around all these CEOs in Singapore. And they were telling me just, you know, how they become successful in their business, and why not use some of that in Buddhism? So market things. And you know our market base, our clientele is worldwide. Because one of the things of our 21st century is that because of things like the internet, because of uh, easy travel, we have choice. 20 or 30, 40, 50 years ago you didn't have much choice. If you were a Buddhist in Penang you went to the local temple. You had no choice. There was no possibilities of hearing an Ang Mo monk. Or you could go to... that's all you could really have. But now you have all this choice. In fact, you don't need even to go to the temple these days. You just go on the internet. And on the internet you have this huge, bizarre, not bizarre, bizarre of religious teachings. And you know one of the wonderful things we did in Perth to innovate, about 10-15 years ago, we decided to elect as our president, of our lay president of our committee, a young guy. He was only about 23 when he became president. And that was done on purpose. He had hardly any experience he was a good man but he was young and he was the one who started up our website it cost us a lot of money because he told us this is not the leading edge of technology it's called the bleeding edge of technology it cost you a lot of money because you went down avenues which didn't turn out to be very good and very expensive but nevertheless you know, he started it all which means that all of the talks which I give in Perth They'll put straight on the internet, on YouTube. And just last year, this was last May, an uh, IT man on our committee was told we'd, we'd reached over the 1 million mark. And 1 million meant over 1 million whole talks had been downloaded in the last 12 months. That's a Dharma talk like you're hearing now, 1 million the whole talk had been downloaded. And you now I was a theoretical physicist, I know my mathematics, so I did a calculation. And that means 1 million of my talks every year I heard, that was 12 months ago, it's probably more by now, which means that, because they are one hour long, it means averaged over one year at any moment, like right now, there are 141 people in the world listening to Ajahn Brahm uh, and do, giving a Dharma talk. At every moment of the year, on average, 141 people are listening to a Dhamma talk just by me. That's a huge amount of teaching getting out there into the world. And some of those teachings are reaching places they shouldn't reach. Now the Islamic Republic of Iran, people are downloading the talks and listening to them. So you can see what's happening over there when you actually use our modern technology, you give a talk and it's exactly the same effort if you give a talk and uh, one person listens or a hundred people listen or a hundred people listen and you put it on the internet. And the best thing about that is that people don't have to come to the temple. Many young people, actually middle aged or old people, They don't like coming to the temple because they don't know what to do. Should you bow? How should you sit? What should you do? And they are always really scared, when they go out, of the donation box which is always by the door (laughs) when you go out. On the internet you don't need to have donation box. And best of all, if you are actually in a hall, sometimes people feel a bit afraid of walking out. But if you are on the internet, it's so easy, you just delete and no one knows about it. So you can listen to these things in your bedroom, you can listen to these things in your car on the way to work and many of you tell me you do that. And because of that you put it on the iPod and sometimes people tell me they have about 150 talks of mine on the iPod. Which means whenever they get stuck in the traffic they can listen to a Dharma talk. Now that has had a huge effect on helping people's lives. Simple things like using that modern technology It's so it's simple to do, have a huge effect. And so, next time I come here, Chao Po, I expect this to be on the internet. <laughs> or someone. Because it's not that hard to do and it makes these talks more interesting for people. And it's wider. And this is really gets into our younger generation. And many of you parents who think, I really want my children to get more interested in Buddhism and to become better kids and even get them into meditation. But you try getting your kids to come to the temple, no way mum! Sometimes you have to bribe them and that's the only way you can get them to come here. But on the Internet, they love that Internet, that's their home. That's their area, that's where they play around. And if you can actually teach them how to use the internet to listen to the Dhamma, it's amazing, you get these amazing kids who never go to the temple but know more buddhism than you do. Isn't that wonderful? So by using modern techniques, modern ways, we are bringing that buddhism into the 21st century and what most modern people they don't like, they're not really all that um, comfortable with all the ceremonies and the rituals which have accumulated in Buddhism over the year. And to be able to bring Buddhism in the 21st century, those rituals are helpful but they need to be explained. Such as, why do Buddhists bow three times? Do you know why they bow? What's the benefit of bowing? The benefit of bowing is if you bow a lot, it exercises your tummy muscles so you don't get so fat no that's not also what it is when I bow I've got to explain to people to bring this Buddhism into the 21st century I have to explain especially to Westerners and say why are you doing that explain it to me and why does it work what's the benefit of this and I said, when I bow this is how it was taught by Ajahn Chah when I bow to a Buddha statue for the first time I bow to the Buddha and to the Buddha is what that represents to me and to me now the Buddha represents the virtuous, compassionate one. So actually, I usually bow to virtue, first of all. And the second time I bow, I bow to peace, and the third time, I bow to compassion virtue, peace and compassion. So that's what I bow to. So when the first time I bow, I'm thinking of virtue. I worship virtue. I've seen its benefit to myself and to others. By Virtue means being kind to others and being kind to yourself, doing good things in life, being generous, helping out, not getting angry at other people, not cheating them, not lying. That's virtue. And because I've seen the immense value of virtue in my own life and as a teacher of many years, seeing how it's just raised people's lives up and giving them their happiness back. You know, when they stop drinking, you know, when they stop playing around with other people's uh, husbands or wives, you know, when they stop lying. That virtue makes people just so strong, happy, with a wonderful sense of being at peace with themselves. And I've seen how it's helped people so much. It's so easy for me to bow my head down, virtue, I worship you. And it reminds me of the value of of virtue. So if you bow down and the first thing when you bow down you think of virtue and how important it is, it means that because you're valuing virtue, you become a more virtuous person. You're remembering how valuable goodness is. So you become a better and better person. And then the second time I bow down, I remember peace. Especially the peace of meditation or the peace between good friends who have settled arguments. The peace in the world which gives us freedom to come and go without fear. Peace is such an important, valuable thing. So when I bow down the second time, I remember peace. I raise peace way above my head by putting my head on the floor. Think what a wonderful thing peace is. And because I remember how valuable it is, I cultivate more peace in my life. And whatever peace I have, I care for it and guard it like a valuable jewel. And wherever I see an opportunity to make peace in this world, I will work as hard as I can to create that peace. Why? Because I bow down so many times remembering the importance of peace. And of course, third time, I bow down to compassion, to kindness, to metta, And I love metta, I value it so much. And each one of you just know its power. Know if kindness, compassion, it binds communities together, it binds people together. You know, before I became a a teacher, I always remember, again, Ajahn Chah's advice. Because he told many of us, he said, if ever you become an abbot or a teacher, he said, the most important quality you have to cultivate is kindness if you're going to be a leader the head of a family the CEO of a business or the leader of a Buddhist community wisdom, experience that's nowhere near as important as your kindness and he taught me the importance of compassion so if I've been successful in building up Buddhist communities in Australia and abroad it's because of that great advice from my master, Rajan Cha. Make compassion the most important part of your leadership. So I worship, I've seen the results of kindness and compassion. And it's one of the most beautiful and sacred things you ever see in the world. Whether you're a Muslim, a or Christian, or Buddhist, whoever, compassion shines wherever you see it. And that's why I bow down to compassion. And when I bow down I remember the importance of compassion. It helps me become a more compassionate person. So every time I bow down to three times I do it to virtue, peace and compassion. It means I'm strengthening those qualities in myself. And I bow down again, they get stronger because I remember their importance. And that means a little ritual which sometimes people do automatically becomes a training for me, I can see the benefit of it, I'm mindfully remembering those qualities and they grow, 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 grow stronger and stronger. So you see you're taking this Buddhism which you know you may have bowed so many times and never understood why the hell you're doing it, now you know why. So it helps, so you tell your children why you do these things, so all the rituals which sometimes you've been doing for generations, if it, Buddhism is going to uh, really grow in the 21st century, which it actually is growing very, very strongly, understand why we're doing these rituals. You know these rituals all have a meaning. That's why they've been there for such a long time, but we've forgotten those meanings. So you have to let everybody know why we do these things. And then when you understand why, These are brilliant teachings and you can see that all the things I've said so far are practical. They make people better people, they give you more harmony in your family, more success in your business, more health in your life. So the religion is not just being some theory of what's going to happen to you after you die, it's going to be something which affects everybody's daily life in a very positive way. And as I said, our modern world has choice. Just because you were born in Penang, it doesn't mean you have to be a Buddhist. Just because you're born in London doesn't mean you have to be a Christian. Now we have this wonderful choice in our world and people do exercise that choice. And they have the opportunity to read and see things from other religions recently that one of uh, my followers in Perth, he's only about 24-25 years of age, he told me that, you know, he's now a confirmed Buddhist, but his younger brother is a Catholic and his younger brother was going to confirmation when he's being confirmed into that religion. So it doesn't matter that that, um, this guy is a Buddhist, his younger brother is a Catholic, it was a big day for his younger brother he wanted to go to support his younger brother. So he went to the church as well. And as soon as the priest saw him, he said, I don't care if you call yourself a Buddhist, if you're coming to this uh, function, you have to go to confession first. And he thought, is there anything wrong with going to confession as a Buddhist? Of course there's nothing wrong. So he went into the box, you know, they have this box with, you know, the... Uh, the person doing the confessions on one side the priest is on the other side so he went into the box, he was a Buddhist but he didn't mind he couldn't confess anything but before he could confess he looked in at the priest and so the priest who was waiting for the next person to come in the box, he was reading a book and he looked over just to see what book the Catholic priest was reading and he looked over and saw it was called Opening the Door of Your Heart by Ajahn Brahm (laughs) It was my book! <laughs> so you see, this is our modern world. Catholics read Buddhist books. We all read each other's books. So we can all have the wonderful thing of choice. Now, if you're going to be able to compete, and it really is like you know competing in the market of religions, and that's basically what it is, because when you've got choice, you've got so many products on the supermarket self, shelf, Catholicism, Anglicanism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam and all the different brands of Islam, Buddhism, Mahayana, Theravada, Vajrayana, Sufism, Zen, Free Thinking. You think, Gee, what am I going to choose? So there's no reason why. No, we can't actually make that Buddhist brand far more popular. Because as people in Singapore have been telling me our product is such high quality but for many years where we've been lacking is the marketing you now we've got the best computer say but we don't sort of advertise it in such a way that people even look at it so to bring Buddhism in the 21st century we've got a great product beautiful virtue, great compassion, very powerful rituals. But what we are lacking is presenting it in such a way that people find out and they think, like many Australians have said, wow this is amazing! Why haven't you told me about this before? This is actually what happens with Buddhism. Even recently the plumber, the Australian plumber who was Uh, doing all the plumbing at our retreat centre. Just before he was finished he said, what is Buddhism anyway? He'd been working to build a Buddhist retreat centre, he wanted to know what Buddhism was. So we gave him a copy of opening the door of your heart and also introduction to meditation, the basic method of meditation. Three days later he came back and said, I just realised, I've been a Buddhist all along, but no one told me. So he got another convert, he wasn't a convert, He'd already been a Buddhist, he never realized it. And there's so many people like that. So really there's a huge number of people out there in the world, even here in Penang. If they could hear good Buddhist teachings, they would think, wow, I want to go do more of this. This is the product for me. This is the path I want to go on. It's practical, it makes sense, it's kind, it's inspiring. Yeah, I want more of that. And that is what's going to be taking Buddhism into the 21st century. We don't need to change the teachings, they're great already. It's just marketing it. We don't need, one of the other wonderful things we can do is, I mentioned yesterday, all this so-called division between the different types of Buddhism. For me, and I'm sure Kaisi will agree, that's just ridiculous. The divisions are just, we wear different color robes and that's about it. And so it's wonderful to take Buddhism into the 21st century for all our different traditions, Mahayana, Theravaja, Vajrayana to all come together. We share so much which is in common that we can stand up here on a stage as a, as a common front not like Catholics and Anglicans and Jehovah's and uh, Seventh-day Adventists and all these other different uh, sects of Christianity. But Buddhism actually can show its harmony. One Buddha, one Buddhism together. What a wonderful statement that is making in our world. A powerful statement to bring Buddhism into the 21st century. Theravada can't do it by itself. Mahayana won't be able to do it by itself. Tibetan Buddhism won't be able to do it by itself. But imagine if we all really came together big time. Yeah, there we can do it, by it together. We can make a wonderful statement. There is only one Buddha. And the Dharma, who's got it right? Mahayana, Theravada, Vajrayana. Which suitors? Which texts are the most authentic teachings of the Buddha? The truest teachings of the Buddha? And the answer is is the sutra which you read in here. (laughs) The text in the heart. That's the most accurate one. And that's the one all our traditions share. So that's how we can take Buddhism into the, not the 20th century, 21st century. Thank you for listening. (laughs) Very good. So nice to see a few starters from the kids there because you are the 21st and 22nd century kids. So any questions about this evening's talk before I go into the box? Okay, I better keep these ones first of all. The box questions come next. There you go. Very good. Okay, so some of these questions, I think, may be from two days ago, maybe from the 20th century. Can mental in- oh, this is a great one. Can mental illness patients go to meditate, and how to be sure the- will the kids be healthy? And how does a monk control their sexual desire? <laughs> First of all, with mental illness and actually it's the same question, because sexual desire is a mental illness. No, it's for mental disease. I've never mentioned this, but a lot of the time when I've been speaking recently is uh, on the Buddhist approach to mental illness. This is in Australia because I gave one talk. People liked it so much, they invited me to go and give all these other talks because with mental illness, in Buddhism we say there is no such thing as a person who's mentally ill. There's, no, there's not a person who has, who's a schizophrenic or who's psychotic. Such people don't exist. What there is, is a person who suffers schizophrenia. There is a person who has bouts of psychosis. Because anyone who is in this field knows that a person is not always manifesting that behavior which we call psychosis or even depression or um, even um, Down syndrome. What there is, is people who exhibit these. And if you look upon a person and say you're a schizophrenic, then there's no possibility of doing very much. If you look at that person, you're a person first. You're much bigger than this. Schizophrenia is only part of you. And if you treat the other part of them, which is not schizophrenic, you get huge results. Basically, it's a teaching of the two bad bricks in the wall, which if you don't know by now, because I've been telling it every year I come here, read it in my book. And I was so pleased about 18 months ago to be invited to give a a keynote at the, I think it's the 60th anniversary of the uh, Institute for Mental Health in Singapore, used to be the old Woodlands Hospital and they wanted me to give a speech, so I gave a speech on this sort of stuff and afterwards again they were impressed, they took me around one of the wards and actually the person who was running the ward was a Christian, but he said, don't tell anybody, I really like your talk, can you give the ward a Buddhist blessing? (laughs) (laughs) That's why we don't mind the Buddhist Christians, Muslims, we all help each other and then I was asking him, how do you treat The schizophrenia in this state-of-the-art unit and he said exactly what you said we don't treat the schizophrenia we treat that patient the times they're not schizophrenic and I thought wow you've got it if you treat the schizophrenia you'll find that you're acknowledging that schizophrenia focusing on it and it grows But if you treat and focus most of your attention on those periods when that schizophrenia is not there, you are building up and strengthening that other part of that person. Two bad bricks in the wall simile, And you know what I mean. And they're getting huge results, positive results from that type of therapy. That again is state of the art treatment for mental illness. There is no such thing as a person being mentally ill. That's not the whole of them. They are not permanently mentally ill. They are a person who suffers bouts of mental illness. So remember the other part of them. Not just the mental illness, the other part of them. And if you focus on that a lot, you solve the problem. And as for monks and their sexual desire, control their sexual desire, First of all, you look, I mean, sexual desire. I mean, what is that really all about? A lot of it is fantasy. That's actually why we have holy water. You know, sometimes that, you know, I was asking about some of these rituals. You know, you see even in, down below there, the priest every lunchtime sprinkles people with holy water. So, what the idea of that is, because sometimes you get girls, very pretty girls, come with all their makeup. When I sprinkle holy water, I sprinkle lots on them. (laughs) So all their makeup starts to drip off. So you see what they really look like and that's the end of your sexual desire. (laughs) Because it's fantasy, isn't it? Look, if you really want... Well, look, for you young men and young women, or maybe even older men older women who haven't learnt better by now, If you're going out with, you know, a member of the opposite sex, where do you go? You take them out for dinner, don't you? If you've got enough money. You take them out into like, what's romantic? A candlelit restaurant. Isn't that romantic? Or you might take them to like a nightclub. Or you might take them, now if you're in the West, it's always romantic to have a walk by the river under the moonlight that's really romantic under moonlight now a long time ago I figured out why these places are romantic what's common between the candlelit restaurant under the moonlight by the river or in the nightclub all of those places are dark (laughs) because in the darkness you can't really see what you're falling in love with no one ever falls in love in the middle of the day under the bright sunshine. (laughs) Never. (laughs) You invite your darling sweetheart to go for a walk in the middle of the day. It's not romantic. You know, you have, instead of the nightclub, ask the nightclub owner to turn all the lights up bright. That's not romantic either. No one ever falls in love if you did things like that. So you can see that sexual desire, a lot of it is fantasy. So as monks, we always turn the lights up. (laughs) And then we don't have sexual desire. Okay, does our dreams have any meanings? I've been having different unpleasant dreams for the past few weeks. Is it a sign of something bad is going to happen? No, it was a sign. It was a sign you're going to ask this question. And you see it's worked, you've asked this question. No, that sometimes people have good dreams, sometimes people have bad dreams. And most of those dreams have no meaning whatsoever. They are just dreams. That's why we call them dreams. They're not real. But if you think they have some meaning to them, then that's where you sometimes if you really think they have a meaning that something bad's going to happen to me something bad's going to happen to me something bad's going to happen to me then something bad does going to ha- happen to you it's called wish fulfillment if you believe those dreams then of course you make them happen so have you ever dreamt of falling in love and marrying a beautiful guy or a beautiful girl and what happened? You married your wife. You <laughs> have your husband. It did work out, did it? Quite the way you expected. So all dreams, again, that's when, again, fantasies have full reign to make you the person who scores the winning goal in the football match between Malaysia and Singapore. It makes you the great lover. It makes you the millionaire or it makes you the idiot if you have negativity. So all the dreams are telling you, if you have unpleasant dreams, it means you've got a bit of negativity in your psychology right now. So the way to overcome that before you go to sleep at night, do some metta meditation. Loving kindness, may all beings be happy and well. May all beings be free of suffering. May I be happy and well. May I be free of suffering. What I do, very quick, when I go to bed at night, the last person I see before I go to sleep is me. So I say, good night Ajahn Brahm, have a nice sleep. See you in the morning. Good night. <laughs> That's how I do loving kindness to me. And you know when I wake up in the morning, guess who I see? It's me again. Hi. Have a wonderful day, great to see you again. <laughs> now that's not being crazy, that is positive psychology. You try that when you go to bed tonight. Say so, night, me, have a great sleep, see you tomorrow morning, bye. <laughs> what should we do when we can't escape from the people who like to talk bad gossip about other people? Okay, then you can't escape when you like to talk bad gossip about other people. When they stop talking, you pause for a while. This is a great psychological tool, which you learn in Buddhism, it's all about mindfulness. So they go, gossip, gossip, have you heard about so and so, what she did, she's a really bad person, she did this, she did that. And when they finish, pause, don't say anything. Because what happens then is they've got nothing else to do but to reflect on what they've just said. This also happens maybe when your husband scolds you, when you come home from work late or something. Instead of saying, but what are you saying that to me for? I never did this. Instead of trying to justify yourself, when he's finished scolding you, pause for 20 seconds because he'll have nothing else to do but to reflect and contemplate on the bad speech he's just delivered. And then he'll feel quite remorseful he's spoken so badly to someone he loves. Too often when somebody shouts or gossips they don't have time to really reflect on what they've just done because you go back saying something else. When their speech finishes, your speech begins instantly. So when they're gossiping, pause. Give them a time for them to see what they've just said. And it has amazing effect. You don't need to tell them. You just have to give them the chance to see for themselves. That's an interesting way of dealing with it. Dear Ajahn, noble silence and letting go. Relaxation is very important. What I notice is those who are chit chatting away are more relaxed than those who maintain noble silence. Are we to be are we too addicted to our habitual living? It's okay to be noble silence as long as you're not doing it like a control freak. Then it's not noble silence, it's like stupid silence. Because if you're going to be silent you should be relaxed enough to be silent but if you're really tense when you're silent of course that's not noble at all so if you are going to be silent just relax into the silence and that's much more relaxed than those people who talk and chit chat because if you talk and chit chat if your mind is working that hard that it moves your lips When you sit down to meditate, your mind is still going to be working. People who chit-chat, when they are supposed to be keeping quiet, will find their mind wandering and thinking when they sit down. You can't see that but I know that. So those people who relax into noble silence, who don't talk outside, they find it far more easy to get into deep meditation when they sit on their cushion or chair. So those people who haven't got deep meditation yet don't think, oh I can't meditate. No, the reason is because you can't keep quiet. Okay, you've got two days left, so zip it up. (laughs) Is it only humans can get enlightened? What about other beings in other realms? Are they able to gain enlightenment? What about dogs? Can dogs get enlightened? What about chickens? Because chickens sit for hours without moving on their eggs. Can they get enlightened? What about water buffalo? If you ever look at water buffalo in Asia, they're just so peaceful. They just walk around and nothing bothers them. That's why in Thailand someone asked Ajahn Chah look those water buffalo are so serene and calm are they close to being enlightened? No said Ajahn Chah, they're just dumb. (laughs) (laughs) So animals have a hard time being enlightened but they can certainly make good karma as I suggested the other day. But as for other beings devas can become enlightened. That's why that sometimes that uh, these heavenly beings listening to Dharma talks because they too like to listen to a Dharma talk every now and again and sometimes a wonderful thing is said and it works. One of those stories and this is a great story for the lay people to listen to and for the monks to reflect upon. This is the lay follower Sopaka. Once there were these two monks and they were just walking from place to place. And when it came close to the wasa, the rains retreat, they came to this very nice place by a river, it was a very nice place to practice, but the nearest person to the river was this uh, lay supporter, Sopaka. And as soon as she saw the monk, she invited him, please monks, stay for the rains, for the retreat. Now I'll get my husband to build you a hut each, a simple hut, And I will cook food for you every day because I'm a devoted Buddhist and I want to help you monks become enlightened. So I will cook, and also don't waste time doing your washing your robes, leave it for me, and I'll even do the washing and I'll clean your hearts, I'll do everything so you can just meditate all day and all night for those three months. So the monks thought, wow, this is a good deal. We accept. So for three months. Those monks live in ideal situation, meditating and walking and this woman just cleaned and scrubbed and cooked for those monks. Many years later, she died. And she was reborn in the uh, Tingza realm. And when she was reborn in the Tingza heaven, because she was a really good girl, a really good Buddhist, she started thinking, I wonder what happened to those two monks which I looked after for the wasa. And she found them in the heaven realm, below her. They would be born in the, in the realms of, I think, the, what it, the, uh, the four great kings. I forget what they were, the yakas or butas or something. But anyway, they were one lower than she was. So she thought, My goodness. I washed and scrubbed and cooked for these scallywag monks they must have been sleeping all day for those three months because look at me I've gotten to a much higher rebirth than they have so she went down to that realm she found those two monks and she scolded them you lazy, good for nothing monks, I'd expect that at least you'd get into a higher heaven realm or be a stream winner or an arahat. after all I did for you. I would love to have three months just to meditate by myself and you, you just got to this lower realm and I'm in a higher realm than you. What the heck were you doing? (laughs) And it's interesting because one of the monks felt ashamed. And they say that he roused his mindfulness and in Pali mindfulness doesn't mean just being aware of the moment it's remembering all of your teachings from the past and that was enough to make him leave that world I think become a once returner and get reborn in the realm he actually got a stage of enlightenment after being scolded by a woman so the next time you see a bad monk, scold him you might make him an in a state of enlightenment so because sometimes people think no we can't scold monks it's bad to scold monks and so you're afraid of scolding monks but there was a case where a woman scolded a monk and helped him get to being a once returner <laughs> and as for the other monk oh he was just a hopeless case oh that's just a woman go away woman and he just wouldn't listen to her And so he remained in that lower heaven realm. And that was Sopaka's story. So yes, you can get enlightened as a Deva, or you can increase the stages of enlightenment. And it's also and I'm saying this carefully as lay men and lay women, as devoted disciples of Buddhism, please it's all right, it's acceptable, it's actually helpful. the right time and the right place, if you see any monk or nun misbehaving please tell them. That was done in the time of the Buddha and it's very helpful so it gives the monks and nuns some feedback. Otherwise sometimes there may be good monks but you just don't know because you are not being told. And if we are to take Buddhism into the 21st century our Sangha needs your help. So keep the Sangha at a high and high standard. And if it's a good monk, then accept your admonition. What is Buddhism and Ajahn's view towards mercy killing or euthanasia? As this one Sri Lankan monk told me, Sri Lankan uh, man told me, he said, euthanasia is not the real problem, youth all over the world is the problem. <laughs> euthanasia. That's a joke. Anyway, some of you got it. Euthanasia or mercy killing. That's a tough one. Because recently, last October, I went to England with the main reason of visiting my mother. I know she had Alzheimer's and my brother was telling me it was getting worse and she was declining rapidly. So as soon as the wasa, the range retreat was finished, about, it was the next day after Akatina the next morning I flew to London to see my mother in the hope she might still remember me. She didn't. Her mind has gone. She doesn't know me from the cleaner. She has Alzheimer's, total forgetfulness. And... She is still quite fit in other areas. But I saw some other people in that she's in an institution now because that's the only place which can really look after her. She needs 24-hour care. And my brother who looks after her just cannot give that care. So she's in an institution now with many other people with Alzheimer's. And it's usually people in that condition, when you see them you think, my goodness, there's no quality of life, not much anyway and there is no prospect for any cure and if anyone is (laughs) ever going to see a case for euthanasia, it will be people with such bad Alzheimer's disease. However, sometimes I think for myself, if that is your mother, is that a good thing to do? And I remember a story, someone told me when I was in England, about a man who would go to visit his mother every morning in a similar institution. Because his mother also had Alzheimer's. And the doctor took him aside one day and said, Look, you're wasting your time coming to visit your mother every morning. Once a fortnight is okay, your mother doesn't even know you. She doesn't recognize you. She doesn't know you've come yesterday. Why do you come every day? And this man said, it's true that my mother doesn't recognize me, it's true that my mother doesn't know who I am. But every morning I recognize my mother. Every morning I know who she is, that's why I come every day. And I thought what a wonderful attitude that is, that's a Buddhist attitude. It doesn't matter if she doesn't recognize you, you recognize her. And that's the reason to go. So as far as euthanasia is concerned, I can understand why a person decides to take euthanasia. If they decide with kindness, with wisdom, with compassion, there is a case for that. So as a Buddhist I would not recommend it but I would not ban it either. And I give people that freedom of choice. But to make sure that that freedom of choice is within limits so they are not acting heedlessly depressed or through other sort of stupid desires and I think really that's going to happen in many countries in the world if it hasn't happened already people are going to be given that freedom because as medical science increases our longevity but does nothing for our quality of life the question is going to become more and more common And of course you all know what happens even in hospitals in Malaysia. That sometimes, sometimes the nurse does give the extra extra dose of morphine. They know they're killing their patient. Euthanasia happens but it's not acknowledged. And sometimes when things happen like that they're not acknowledged. Sometimes you think that it's best to keep things out in the open and have a moral code which stops obvious abuses but still gives people the freedom of choice. Because the question is if that's you having no quality of life, in pain, with no prospect of survival, some of you may say, I'm going to carry on like this as a contemplation. Others of you, I think, should be given a choice. To end the life. So I'm not recommending it either way, but I think the choice has to come. Ajahn, I am a Dharma teacher for teenagers, could you give us useful website where we can learn how to teach Dharma to teenagers? I think just Google in Buddhism teenagers, because there's a heap of information out there. And you know, once you get one site, you get another site and another site and another site. Now go to youth groups, Buddhist youth groups and find out what they're doing. And the great thing with the internet, you don't have to travel to all these places to get the information. Just go on the internet and find out from different places what they're doing and how they're innovating and how it's working. So that's the way to do it, by doing research on the web. I have a good friend who is in depression. He used to practice meditation, how can we help to come out from depression, Meta. If it is very deep depression, as one um, psychiatrist told me, there are some depressions which are so deep, I forget what the word was, actually you do need some medication. That's the only way to come out of the deeper depressions. Well the National Health Service in Britain was just doing the average sort of depressions. But there are some very, very clinically bad depressions where you are so deep you do need some medication, you do need proper psychiatric care to get to that stage where meditation can start to do the rest of the work for you. Mm. So it really depends on how deep that that depression is. Seek the advice of the psychiatrist or the psychologist and eventually use that meditation as certainly part of the cure back to so called normalcy and it works but do a very soft meditation, not the very hard vipassana where you have to get up early every morning and you have to sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk no matter what because that just makes you more frustrated and depressed. The meditation be very soft and easy, gentle, encouraging meditation. That's why metta is one of the best. What is the difference between deep meditation and the jhanas? One of the differences is, as a monk, one of my rules is I cannot tell any of my own attainments. That's against the 8th prajitia. So you may hear me, I never say, I, when I had this jhana or when I got that jhana. So one of the ways I get around that is by saying, when I had a deep meditation, which could mean anything, so that's one of my skillful means. Is it okay to do Reiki? Yeah, there's lots of leaves on the piles outside, get a rake and clean them up. <laughs> now that's only a joke, yes it's okay to do Reiki because you know, it, uh, at the very least you're doing compassion for other people. And I don't know too much about it but people say it works I don't care whether it works or it doesn't work, I know it works because of compassion, so do it. Sometimes when we take photos of holy sites we can see orbs in the picture. What are they? Are they devas? No, they are dust particles, a classical refraction pattern. And As soon as I saw this, any of you done physics at school, you see this is diffraction, classic diffraction pattern. And what really was a, the convincer for me when you go on the internet and google in ORBS you will find that some of those uh, patterns appear on photographs taken in pubs in England in bars, in nightclubs you find them if they were devas it means the devas are going to pubs, the nightclubs no deva goes to places like that but certainly there are dust in old pubs And years ago when I first looked at this, those orbs in Asia, they were devas. At last, we've got evidence of devas. In United States, they were looked upon as being aliens. The first signs of E.T. And in England, there was ghosts. Because there was lots of... old. So everybody had the different interpretations. In UK, it was evidence of ghosts in United States evidence of aliens from outer space and in Asian countries, Buddhist countries, devas, we have evidence of devas now. The science tells you it is dust particles. The light from the flash at the front of the digital cameras, if you look at the old cameras, the old analog cameras and the digital cameras, the digital cameras, the flash is further to the front. So it does illuminate dust particles in front of the lens where the old cameras would not. And it's a classic diffraction pattern from dust. There's so much dust around which is usually in the old places especially in India. You know how much dust there is there? That's why you get lots of lights in India. Because it's dusty, that's all. Regarding meditation, what must we do if complex thought arise? Must we keep on putting back our concentration or allow our thoughts to lead us? If complex thoughts come up into your mind, one thing which I suggested to one young man in the interviews, try and find the space between the thoughts. Just like, listen, when I am speaking there are spaces, be- between my words now I spoke like that to so say could make it very clear there are gaps between my words but even in ordinary speech there are gaps between my words if when you're thinking you notice the spaces between your thoughts start noticing them they're always there and then because you notice the spaces between your thoughts those spaces grow because they are more interesting and they literally crowd out the thoughts from your mind. It's a very skillful technique when you've got lots of thoughts to learn how to let them go. It's called in Buddhism substitution focusing on something else. The space between the thoughts So see if you can investigate that. When a thought stops, or when part of a thought stops, there is a small gap. Because there's nothing happening there, most of us don't see it. But when you train yourself, when you look for it, you can see those gaps, and those gaps grow in length. And after a while, you stop the thinking. Nice technique. Regarding the precepts, the fourth precept, abstain from lying. If others ask about my personal things or things which I do not want to reveal, then I lied. Do I break the precepts? You don't need to lie, just don't tell them. Say, none of your business. So you don't need to lie. Almost ever you don't need to lie. I think there was this one case which somebody told me about. There was... Uh, during the Second World War in Amsterdam there was one family which was sheltering a number of Jewish people the German people at that time were rounding up as many Jews as they could find sending them to extermination camps like Auschwitz and Belsen to kill them and so many many kind locals were hiding the Jewish people knowing that if the Jewish people got caught, they'd be sent to be killed and the people protecting them would also be killed. It was a very bad and dangerous time. And this one man was sheltering Jews up in his loft when the German SS knocked at his door to search it and they asked him, are there any Jews in this house? And he was a very moral person who would not lie. So he was faced with this choice. He wrote about it in a book I was told. Should I lie and say there's no Jews in this house and protect those Jewish people's lives? Or should I tell the truth and have them killed and save my life? What should I do? And so straight away he said, look for yourselves. And the SS said, thank you very much, sir, and went to the next house. He never lied, but he spoke in such a way as to give confidence to these uh, searchers. There was nothing happening in his house. Search for yourself, he was quite open. And they left him and went next door. And that was a lovely example of in a very difficult situation, you don't have to lie. If you're wise, (coughs) you don't tell the truth. But you can find this other middle way, out of compassion, to save other people's lives, to save your reputation, whatever else it is, without breaking your precepts. So if it's your personal stuff, you know, just saying, well, you've been meditating for such a long time now, you can probably read my mind. Find out for yourself. (laughs) I don't know, or something like that. Ajahn Brahm, you said that if a person is in jhana, he or she will not be harmed physically. When Thich Quang Duc, the Vietnamese monk, made himself into a human torch, was he in jhana? He died. But my goodness, he sat so still. How did he do it? What state was he in? No, actually you could see him rocking when he was burning himself. I remember that photo. He would not be in jhanas because it takes much longer than a few seconds to get into jhanas. So no, he was just holding himself still with mental control and a very difficult thing to do, maybe contemplating on the great pain, but it certainly was not in jhana. If one parent is in a coma, and Dr. Ray recommended to stop the life support system, and if one agreed with the decision, has one committee waited calm of killing one's parents? Ooh, that's a big question, because... If you're responsible for the death of your mother or father, that's supposed to be called one of the heavy karmas which stops you getting enlightened in this life. And most people say, I'd never kill my mum, I'd never kill my father, but this is a case where it might happen. There you are, your mother is in hospital, in a coma, and you're the eldest son, and the doctor comes up and tells you, your mother's got no hope of survival, she's a vegetable, can I turn off the machine? and it's your decision. What should you do? And again the answer is very simple and this is practical, we've done it many times. Just the other day when I said that's your dog or cat with uh, bad disease and the doctor says, shall we put it down? Ask the dog, ask the cat. In this particular case, if that's your mother in a coma, ask your mother is she still there? If that's your mother and you've loved her, cared for her, been with her for such a long time, if you stand by the bedside and ask that question, you will know. If she's still there, say no, keep the machine on. If she's gone and you know she's gone, you can say turn the machine off. She's already gone, she's already dead. It's just the machines are keeping the body going, but death has happened. Therefore you're not killing your mother, you're just turning off the machine. However, if she's still there, and you'll feel that, you'll know it. Keep it going. Now that's practical, people have done that. Remember this one lady over in Thailand, I've been going to visit her mother, she had uh, the old mad cow disease eating up her brain for many years in hospital. I went to visit her many times because her daughter actually asked that question. And every time the, sh- the daughter went, I went there, As obviously she was still there. But the last time I went, it was really fascinating. I went there to, because you, you know, don't have to be like uh, a daughter or a son. If you're a good meditator you'll be able to feel it too. When I went by her bedside, I felt that she'd had enough. She was just so exhausted. And so I told the family, they were waiting there. They were just in the room. I said, look, your mother's about to go. She's so tired. She's had enough. She's still there right now. And the next day, she passed away. And the day afterwards, I performed the funeral service for her. I was only three or four days in Thailand. It was perfect. Perfect timing. Well, this other case, a Vietnamese man had a bypass but every now and again the bypass have complications. He was in ICU fighting for his life for about two weeks and sometimes I'd go in about three times a day to see him But all the time you know you'd feel that he was getting stronger and then he would have a relapse and get weak again and you, he was a fighter he was in coma all the time but you could feel that I remember going in one morning or afternoon sitting by his bedside meditating and it was very different he'd gone and I had to tell the, the children. said, your, your father's gone. He's not fighting anymore. He's not there. And the children could feel it and the doctors would say, because they knew it from their machines. So the next day, I think they kept the machine going for another 18 hours or something before turning it off. But I told them, it's already gone. You're not kidding your father anymore. He's departed. That's how you do it. So all you need to do, you don't need to be a great meditator or a monk or a nun. If that's your mother, your father, your kid, your sister, ask the question, are you still there? Feel it in your heart and you'll know. Dear Ajahn, can you kindly explain why our love Buddha's heads looks different from all of us? Sorry to say like just came out of hair salon. <laughs> Is it because he's in line that he got this type of formation? Thank you. I think in one of the suttas it did say he had a slight protuberance on the front of his head but there were many cases in the suttas and in the Vinaya when people met the Buddha they didn't know who he was. They thought he was just a monk. There was this one case of this monk who was travelling to see the Buddha and the Buddha was also traveling. So they shared a lodging overnight. And uh, in the evening the Buddha started meditating and the monk thought, oh, this monk, other monk is meditating, I better meditate too. And the Buddha kept on meditating, the other monk kept on meditating. They said they meditated all night together. And then afterwards, you know, this monk said to the Buddha, said, well, you're a good meditator. <laughs> And the Buddha said, you're a good meditator too, you meditated all night, where are you going? He said, I'm going to see the Buddha. He said, I am the Buddha. "Ah!" (laughs) He didn't realize he spent all night meditating with the Buddha. But that was one case, you see, that people didn't recognize the Buddha, he just looked like an ordinary monk. So if there was a perturbance it wasn't sort of that big which made him stand out. However. I remember when we made our Buddha statue for our monastery in Perth, we said, "Look, let's bring Buddhism into the 21st century. Let's have, like, you know, a flat head, you know, just with just bald, you know, like a monk really would be." And the artist in Thailand said, "I can't do that because if it was like a flat head, it could be any monk. No one would know it was the Buddha." So these days we have these, you know, either flame in time or a bump on the top of the head and its main practical purpose is to point out like a sign, this is the Buddha. And that's all it really serves, like a a mark, a sign on it that this is a Buddha. But the Buddha never looked like that. Just like I remember as a kid watching these movies these movies and documentaries of Jesus Christ and in those movies Jesus Christ always had blonde hair and blue eyes he was a Caucasian in the movies you remember that and everybody knows that Jesus Christ was an Arab he was born in Palestine he was a Jew, he wasn't a Caucasian no way could he have blue eyes but nevertheless that was good for the movies, that's all so this is just good, you know, for the, um, for knowing who a Buddha is. What's the latest on the bhikkhu ordination issue? It's sort of settling down, but it hasn't fully settled down yet. But we're making it there. So that's, if you want to hear more about that, have a look on the internet. But I'm still alive, so are the bhikkhunis <laughs> Okay trespassers will be converted. Is this an original Ajahn Brahm quote? And the answer is yes. Because this is, when this, is not a, this is on a sign outside of our retreat center. Now that wasn't where it originated from when we first bought our land for our monastery in Serpentine just outside of Perth. The fence was just like a farm fence, just like barbed wire and I think some thieves went in to steal something. So we never had any money for a real sign. So being a bit of a joker, now I wrote out a sign and it started off as trespassers will be prosecuted which is a normal sign. But I thought, look, Australian burglars, they're not scared of that, how can I keep real Australian burglars out of my monastery? and I realized they weren't scared of prosecution but they were really scared of being converted. So that's why I put on the sign Trespassers will be converted. (laughs) Unfortunately that sign got stolen. (laughs) But later on when we were making a sign for our retreat centre I was just joking to our builder that this was the sign and so they made that sign up at their expense. So that one of the signs outside our retreat center is tr- I think meditation retreat center trespassers will be converted. And that will keeps out all unwanted people. <laughs> so yeah, it was an original Ajahn Brahm quote. Oh, what was the other thing? And how often are retreats held at Jhana Grove and when are they? Look on the internet and you'll find all that information. Because actually I don't know, I forget. In meditation can you advise on how to deal with a partial shutdown of the body. Whilst meditating it felt as though most of the body had disappeared except for an ache in the leg. Then it all got quite a bit bright and I felt as if I was being lifted and crushed at the same time. All the while I don't think that hearing completely shut down either and when the light subsided the ache in the leg was still there. Short of amputation, that's always a good try, is there any other way? Someone's got a sense of humour, well done. I find... Moving the offending leg at that stage means starting from square one again and it does seem like the same limb gives trouble on the next sitting, thank you very much. I think I answered this question in the interviews but if you do have a pain in the leg or in the arm during the meditation it really is disturbing you, then you can move it. Move it carefully, mindfully, slowly. You don't get back to square one. You only go back to square one if you started off at square two. If you're at square 32 you go back to square 31. In other words you just go one or two squares back, you don't go right back to the beginning. And you can usually make up those one or two squares you lost very quickly afterwards. So it really is well worthwhile doing, instead of enduring the pain. And if part of your body is disappearing, great, you've only got half to worry about. Now see if you can let go of the other half. So you're getting somewhere, well done, carry on. Dear Ajahn Brahm, is there a method to know who your parents, wife or husband from your past life? Some people you feel familiar with, even though you haven't seen them before. Look, sometimes you know when you've been divorced you don't want to even see your ex. <laughs> so are you really sure you want to know your husband from a past life? <laughs> or your wife from a past life? It may be traumatic for you. However, if you do get into these deep meditations, sometimes you can do that, sometimes you can go back into your past lives and once you go back in your past life then you can actually recognize the traits of that person you were married to before and maybe recognize them in this life. So that can be done but really, do you really want to do that? Because sometimes the people that you are familiar with. They could be a partner from the past life, it could be just a good friend from the past life, it could be a son, daughter, father, mother from a past life. And sometimes it does complicate things. Like the story of a Thai girl over in Perth and she was born in a village in Thailand, she's now in her maybe 50s, so you can get some idea of the time scale. She was born in a small village in the northeast of Thailand and as soon as she was able to speak she had perfect recall of her previous life, which was in the same village. And her father in this life was her nephew in the previous life. So she was born as her grandniece or something. Grand, Yeah, grandchild, granddaughter. So from the previous life, um, that's right, her, it must have been her, that's right, her son, was now, one of her sons was her father, that's right, yeah, in this life. So she was her own grandmother, granddaughter. So born in the same family. Her problem was, well first of all, everyone accepted who she was. She was this old lady reborn. The problem was that the headmaster of the village school was her son from the previous life. So when she went to school, the headmaster was a son from the previous life. Now in those Thai schools, probably like Malaysian schools, they're very strict. When a teacher comes in, you have to stand up. And if you get in any trouble, you get the cane. When the headmaster came into her class, she refused to stand up. Why should I stand up for my son? He should stand up for me, said this five, six-year-old girl. And could the headmaster cane her? How could you cane your mum? <laughs> he couldn't do it. So, <laughs> for all the time she was in school, she literally did whatever she wanted and no one could punish and stop her because the headmaster was her son. She said it was very weird and strange, she had a great time but didn't learn very much. Hmm. So that's some of the troubles and, and difficulties if you can remember your past life. It makes life very, very, very complicated. You know when your daughter is your mother and your son is your uncle. <laughs> <laughs> Next question, Buddhists are usually associated with meditating and chanting. You've already explained the reasons and benefits of meditation, how about chanting? Again, the original meaning of chanting was that's what people would do to be able to memorize the teachings when you didn't have books, you didn't have CDs, you didn't have internet. So if you wanted to you know, listen to some teachings you'd memorize them and the way to memorize them was chant them again and again and again. So that's where the chanting began but later on when we had books we kept on the chanting as if it had some psychic powerful uh, powerful effect which it does have that effect as I said the other day if the monk chanting it is a very powerful monk or nun or if you understand the meaning of those words which can be very inspiring so the inspiration has a very beneficial effect but sometimes these days people chant they haven't got a clue what they are chanting and so really it doesn't really have that much effect. Instead of doing chanting for your good health it's much better to do exercise and eat well for your good health. And if you want to chant so the lovely guy you fall in love with will also fall in love with you, all the chanting in the world probably won't help. It's best to go to beauty salon, get a personality course, find out what the guy likes and then act on that. It's probably more powerful than chanting. So be careful. Dear Ajahn, you mentioned that the Buddha said there are four consequences when one indulges in the jhana, stream winning, once returning, non returning or full enlightenment. Are these consequences attained by natural process or does one have to apply a tactical switch to Vipassana to obtain the ultimate truth? They happen by natural result. You don't have to switch to Vipassana or to Samatha there is no difference between the two. Sometimes people say you switch from one to the other but it's a natural path, it's just eightfold path, it happens naturally as the Buddha said many, many times, this is in Pali, samadhi pachaya yata Dasanang. from stillness, from samadhi, you see things as they truly are, it's a natural course. In one of the sutras, in Anguttara Nikaya, it says you don't even need to make the aspiration or to have an act of will once you are still, oh may I see things as they truly are. It happens naturally, automatic, tamata, that the one who is still will see things as they truly are. All automatic. Ajahn, I tend to have both sides of my nose blocked in the morning. Sometimes I find it really irritating when I try meditating using my mouth. What should I do? Okay, that happened to me many times because I suffered from hay fever and so sometimes of the year I couldn't breathe through my nose and so I thought I can't meditate. And then I learned that to meditate you don't have to watch the nose, you have to watch the breath. And even when your nose is blocked, you're breathing somewhere, otherwise you'd be dead. (laughs) So just watch the breath wherever it happens to manifest. So if you've got a blocked nose or whatever, you just close your eyes, breathe in and out three times and ask yourself, how do I know I was breathing in and breathing out? Whatever sensation it was which told you you were breathing in or you were breathing out, wherever that sensation is located, that's how you watch the breath, naturally. Are husband and wife encouraged to sleep in separate rooms? If they snore, yes. But, no, if you're keeping eight precepts, maybe. But if it's, you know, in daily life, of course you sleep in the same room. So it's not encouraged, not not encouraged. It's, basically it's none of my business. <laughs> I should have said that to begin with. Why Venerable Bahiya is the fastest enlightened monks? Okay, he was very fast in the sense that as soon as he heard the Dhamma he could become enlightened but that doesn't mention all the other preparation he'd done before he heard those teachings of the Buddha. So he wasn't really fast at all, he'd been practicing for lifetimes. In his previous life he was one of seven monks who decided to meditate or die trying. So they got a ladder, they climbed up to a peak of a mountain and they threw the ladder away. There was no going down again. They were meditating on the top of this mountain or they would die. A couple of monks became enlightened. One became an anagami. And I think Bahia, I don't know, did he become a stream winner? But anyway, he had to get reborn in this uh, next life. So that was his previous life. He made a lot of progress in his previous life before he met the Buddha. Could any of you do that? Are you really that willing to become enlightened? You go up, you know, a ladder, you go to the top of the Petronas Towers, throw the ladder down and say, I'm going to sit on top of here until I die, What else. So that's the sort of person he was. So it wasn't that he came from nowhere, and just managed to find the Buddha and the Buddha taught him and suddenly he was enlightened. There was a lot of work done before that. Since becoming a monk, are you still subject to normal types of dreams or nightmares? How sophisticated have your dreams become? <laughs> I'll tell you one of my lovely dreams many years ago. I had these dream. These are the sort of dreams a monk gets. I, well, I don't mind telling you these things. I dreaming about having this psychic battle with a Hindu, and we were flying through the air, sapping each other, flying here and sapping this and sapping that. Wow, it was like just you know, one of these video games. <laughs> but that was just because I'm a fun monk, because I like having fun. It's only a dream, messing around. How to change the bad habits? If you want to change your bad habits then come to this temple every time there's a talk, meditate, keep your precepts and your bad habits will change. That's how we change bad habits, by listening to Dharma to be inspired, getting all these amazing techniques how you can change and best of all meditating and that really does change your bad habits. And how to constantly practice Dharma in our daily life? It's very easy. You've got to do something every moment. So, be kind. Try and be caring. Or, as one of the great um, teachings in that book, Open the Door of Your Heart, says, the Empress Three Questions. The answer to those Empress Three Questions is a great way of practicing Dharma in daily life. In short, the Empress Three Questions is when is the most important time? Who is the most important person? What is the most important thing to do? The when, who and what. And when is the most important time? Now. So if you want to practice Dhamma in the daily life, make now more important. When is the best time to say sorry to your wife? Turn around and say it. <laughs> <laughs> when is the best time to say how much you love your parents? Now. Now. Because the moment goes. So the most important time is now. Who is the most important person? Don't say yourself. That is the wrong answer. For those of you who have read the story, it's a great answer. The most important person is the one you're with. Whoever that happens to be. That is brilliant, deep teachings. So whenever I'm talking with you, in this moment, you are the most important person in the world. Not anymore. <laughs> now you're the most important <laughs> <laughs> But what it means is that you're connecting with the person. I know sometimes after I give these talks, I've got good energy tonight, but sometimes after I give these talks, I sit down there and you come up talking to me and I'm tired. But if you come up to talk to me, it doesn't matter how I feel, you are the most important person in the world for me. I really try and practice that, so I think hopefully you feel that that I'm really paying you attention and respecting you. That's how you practice Dhamma in daily life, whoever you happen to be with give them importance. So if that's your wife and you just come home from work tired please remember, if she's in front of you, she is the most important person in the world don't take her for granted. If that's your son or your daughter wants a bit of your time, if they're right in front of you, they are the most important person in the world. Please give them that importance and you'll have a wonderful relationship with your children. But much of your life, you're by yourself. When there's no one else around, that's when you are the most important person in the world. Just as I said, just before you go to sleep at night, no one else around, now you are really the most important person. And what's the most important thing to do? To care. This wonderful saying to care, halfway between being careful or mindful and caring, compassionate. Just what a doctor does, he cares, not cures. To care is the most important thing in the world to do. So if you can remember those answers to the Emperor's Three Questions. Now is the most important time. The one in front of you, is the most important person, the one you are with, and the most important thing to do is to care. Then you will know how to practice Dhamma in daily life. It's powerful, it works, and it puts all these teachings of the Buddha into a concise, easy to remember and practical way. It brings Buddhism into the 21st century. Thank you for listening. Very good. And there is a 20th, 21st century in front of us, our future. These questions I'll answer tomorrow. These questions came today, but I really had to catch up on the questions from yesterday. So now we can do the sharing of merits. <laughs> Sukhita hon tu yata yo, idam men yati nang ho tu, Sukhita hon tu yata yo, idam men yati nang hotu. Sukita yo sadu. Sadhu. Sadu. Very good. And tomorrow night another talk. Same place, same time. And what's the title tomorrow?
0: Yeah, brothers and sisters in the demo. Many of us keep on worrying and we tend to have lots of challenges, especially financial problems, money challenges. And uh, we're we'll constantly worry about um, whether inflation is going to happen, recession, and uh, whatever, whatever, etc. And etc. And for those of you who constantly have all these kind of worries, you must be here tomorrow, same time, same place, because tomorrow's topic is for you. That will be Buddhist economics and the credit squeeze.
1: Aha. Okay. So Buddhist economics and the credit squeeze coming tomorrow. Please bring your boss from work. (laughs) So you can learn how to deal with the problems. Good night everybody. Have a great night.